Today we're going to be in Luke 9, 37 through 56. Well, the last time we saw that one of the pinnacles of Jesus' ministry where he teaches a great lesson on self-denial and we see yet another revelation of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Today we're going to see as Jesus comes down the mountain with the three, Peter, James, and John, that he's immediately thronged with people and problems. First, apparently while he was on the mountain, the remaining nine disciples who were you know, not on the mountain couldn't cast out a demon, which they should have been able to had their devotional lives been solid. And there's a lesson there. Also, the disciples, after hearing the sermon on self-denial, start bickering about who's number one, who's the greatest. Didn't they just hear the sermon on self-denial? We also see that John takes an attitude of exclusiveness and also that James and John desire to torch the Samaritans. So let's begin. Verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and bruising him, it departs from him with great difficulty. So here's the first problem. Jesus runs into yet another parent of an only child, desperately trying to save him. Now, Matthew's gospel translates, or it actually uses the word epilepsy. Now, this is probably based on how the translators translated that Greek word. But the interesting thing is the Greek word is seleniazomai. It's a mouthful, which literally means moonstruck. In Matthew's gospel, it says the kid was moonstruck. And I like to play with words a lot. In our language, we get the word lunatic, which comes from the Latin word luna, which means moon. There was a lot of superstitions about the moon in our culture years ago and also in their culture. You get the story about the werewolves. When the moon would come out, you know, the man would turn into a, a wolf or a half man, half wolf. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of superstitions over the years about the moon and different planets when they would come by. But, of course, Matthew and Luke, even though that was the common word to use for this kid's ailment, Matthew and Mark, knew, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke knew that this was actually demon possession, regardless of the vernacular that they had to use back then. So it was also definitely a demon that mimicked this affliction. And that shouldn't surprise us, because remember the situation with, in the book of Job, where Satan is allowed to afflict Job with this horrible disease where he gets these boils all over his body. And he actually has to break a piece of pottery and use the sharp edge to pop the boils and let all the ooze comes out because it was very painful. And that was the only way he could get relief. Some of you are wincing. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, conjecture, Satan could have mimicked or outright given Job a form of smallpox, chickenpox, or some type of blistering agent, which later was used in our society in World, World War I and World War II. You ever see the pictures? These people had these tremendous blisters on their body. It's very painful. But just as with the, the boils on Job, uh, the forces of darkness have limited power to afflict us physically. And here it appears that the affliction on this child is in the form of an epileptic seizure. 40, it says, So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Just picture this, uh, what was going on here. There's the nine who couldn't cast out the demon. So they probably tried, and then they, they couldn't do it. So they maybe walked away from him. I don't know. So this guy comes to Jesus, 
And he's begging Jesus now. He's going to give Jesus a shot, even though his disciples couldn't do it. I could just imagine the disciples, you know, the guy's like, please help my son. And then he goes, and your disciples couldn't cast out the demon. I could picture them going, oh, he had to go there. (laughs) Why couldn't he just say my son is sick? But Mark's gospel records a little bit more about what this man says. In 923 and 24, it says, Jesus said to him, the man, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? But it's an incredible statement. He said he has faith, but by his own admission, it's not enough faith. You ever been there in your life? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Lord, I'm trying to move in the right direction. I'm trying to understand your plan. Please help me with my failures, though. I'm not quite there. Faith is an interesting thing because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that faith is a gift from God and we can't boast in our salvation. But we also told that faith is given by a measure. There's a measure of faith given. Also, Romans 10:17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when you hear the word of God, it re- has regenerative properties to build up that faith in you. Also, faith can be grown and cultivated and attributed to the person. Remember the Roman centurion. This man was a Gentile. This man was not a man of God. However, to to the people at large looking at him, but he had incredible faith that Jesus could heal his servant. And Jesus marvels at this man's faith. So it's almost like it can be attributed to a person. So in this instance, the guy had faith. He was exercising faith, but he wasn't fully there. It was a steady progression, and that happens in our lives too. As we grow in Christ, our faith grows. It can't help but become greater and greater. However, we still have these little minor setbacks, but we are always moving in a progressive state. 41. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now, Again, didn't we see in the beginning of chapter 9 that the disciples could cast out demons? What's the problem here? Well, Jesus characterizes this generation as faithless and perverse. We understand what faithless means, but in our society, perverse, pervert, we get a sexual connotation because of the depraved nature of where our society is going. But in this instance, that's not what he's talking about. Faithless, their lack of faith, and perverse, twisted or turned in the wrong direction. The wrong direction was here was God, and they were perverse. They were in this direction. They were turned away from God. Remember, the disciples were part of that generation. They were a product of that society. And it took a long time for Jesus to root this out of them. His characterization of the generation was also his characterization of his own disciples. But the awesome thing is their transformation after the resurrection. Go through the book of Acts. These aren't the same men that you read in the Gospels. It's amazing. As a matter of fact, I keep praying about it, but I think that after Luke, we're going to go into Acts. It's it's a progression of Luke's historical work. And it's no different with any of us. If I can use a word, we're all a bunch of stunads until we come to the cross. You know, a little Italian word there. But Christ can take any one of us in our state, and he could make us into a man or a woman of God, and a man and a woman of great wisdom, faithless and perverse. Is it any different today? 
I'm amazed at how often people can read and hear scripture and be involved in the Christian community, listening to maybe sermons on denial of self, talking about certain sins, adultery, and, and faith. But they remove the power behind the words and make exceptions. In other words, it's a disassociation from the word. It becomes a Christian culture. But you hear the words, you grew up as a Christian, your parents were Christians, your friends were Christians. It's what you are in a culture, but you disassociate the power from the words. Second Timothy 3 tells us there will be a time where some pretty horrible things will happen in the last days. One of the things he says that always struck me, you hear a lot of sins. But then Second Timothy 3, 5 says this. He says that they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. It's like they separate the form of godliness, the appearance of godliness, the culture from the power of God, and it becomes a culture. But I know what the Bible says, but my situation is different. You always get on bad ground when you say but, because what you're saying is, Lord, I know your word is good. I know your word is established. However, make an exception for me. Out of all the people in the world, let them obey that, but let me be the exception. God understands what I'm doing. God, God wants me to be happy. People confuse that word happiness. Sin is pleasurable for a time, but it doesn't make you happy. As a matter of fact, it leaves you high and dry when, you're, when the sin is done using you. So if that's your version of happy, God doesn't want that from you. He wants you to have true joy. Um, you know, you're on dangerous ground there. But Matthew's gospel adds that this type only comes out by prayer and fasting, speaking about the demon being exercised out of the, the young man. It was discipline that the disciples lacked. As a matter of fact, a disciple should equal discipline, and they were lacking that discipline. But it's so easy to pick on the disciples in hindsight, isn't it? We always have to bring it back to us in our society, us personally when we read the scripture. We need spiritual as well as physical disciplines. Satan knows when a believer lacks, lacks power and discipline. You can be sure, just as in this scripture, he knew the disciples lacked that power and he was not coming out of that kid. No matter how much they huffed and how much they puffed, they still couldn't blow the house down. Satan was just not coming out. It had to come from Jesus himself. So in this instance, it was, it was refusal, it was a stubborn demon. But what about in our lives? Lack of discipline and lack of power results in unanswered prayers, lack of fruit, and you can think of a whole host of things that happen in our own lives when we lack that discipline. And I don't want to hear, well, I have ADD. Everybody kind of uses that excuse. Let me tell you what my life is, is like when I study for a message. My office is downstairs in my home, and I start doing it on a Word document. And 15 minutes into it, I'm, I'm just fidgety. You can see me up here. I'm always moving around. That's why I have this thing. So, uh, you know, I'm starting the message 15 minutes into it. I get up. I've got to walk around the house, maybe get something to eat, open the cabinets. I sit back down. I start doing the message again. Then I get up. I walk around. I clean the cat box. You know, stupid stuff. I tease my wife. She yells at me, tells me to go back and finish the message. I'm like Dennis the Menace. You know, I'm all over the place. But you know what? Each time that... I do this. I have to tell myself, go back and finish what you started. I have to force myself to be disciplined. Otherwise, I'll be up here Sunday for 45 minutes just staring at you. I'll have nothing to say. Maybe I'll do a puppet show or something, you know? <laughs> Verse 42. 
And as he was and as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. So the demon knows his time is short. He has to submit to Jesus, and he tries to get his last licks in by throwing the kid down to the ground. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, the word is a wrestling term, threw him down. You ever feel like you're thrown down in your walk, like Satan's just on you, and he's just flipping you around and putting you in a full Nelson? <laughs> but, but that's Satan's job. Satan's job is to throw us around and make our lives dif- difficult. But in the end, look what happens. Jesus takes the kid and presents him back to the kid's father, unharmed. And that's Jesus' job. Satan has his job, and Jesus has his job. He ends up presenting us perfect to the Father. Ephesians 5.27, I just did uh, perform the marriage yesterday. It was a great wedding. Uh, But he says in Ephesians 5.27 that the man is to love his wife like Christ loved the church, and how Christ presented the church glorious and spotless and without wrinkle to himself, and ultimately to the Father. And that's Jesus' job. Every time we're knocked down, the Lord picks us up again and presents us spotless if we forgive our sins. The Bible says if we forgive our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, nine. Have you sinned this week? Have you sinned on the way to church with your spouse? Come on, I know the routine. I've been there. You're fighting in the car on the way to church, and then you're like a block away, and you're, all right, smile. Come on, don't, don't let anybody know anything's going on. Hey, brother, praise the Lord. Isn't it a great day? <laughs> Apparently, a lot of people know what I'm talking about. But the thing is, look, I said yesterday, marriage a lot of times is a series of apologies. Apologize, really mean it, and your spouse forgives you. It's the same thing with the Lord. You confess your sins, he forgives the sins, and it's clean. And you know what? There's some people who have a hard time forgiving themselves. They sin and they ask for forgiveness and they still feel like they're oppressed by that sin. Let God forgive you and let it go. If God doesn't remember it, you shouldn't. If you've truly confessed that sin, he doesn't hold it over your head. Don't hold it over your own head. Let yourself be forgiven. 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, Jesus reinforces the mission. They're all excited but he has to bring them back to reality. Now, this is a concept that's hard to swallow, especially knowing that his followers perceive this as probably the pinnacle of his ministry. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory is showing. No doubt the three told the nine, hey, you missed it. We got to see his glory. And then he comes down and he casts out a demon. I mean, they're just high on life. I mean, who wouldn't be following Jesus? But Jesus had a level head no matter how much people pumped him up. He was sober-minded about the cross, and that's where we should be too. As Christians, when we truly realize that Jesus had to go to die on the cross for our sins, we should be sober-minded about our lives, and it should really give us a drive to live and walk in the Spirit because the more we sin and the more we willingly sin, the more it put Jesus on the cross. It's kind of a weird thing because he did it knowing how much we would sin, but at this point in our lives, where we are today, we, we should not want to sin. We should want to walk in the Spirit. We're not libertines. The libertines used to say, well, we're in the age of grace. Grace, grace, grace. We could do whatever we want. 
But that's what put Jesus on the cross. The reason why we look so good to the Father is because Jesus, when he died on the cross and he took those sins, he took our filthy reputation onto him, all of us in this room. And then his reputation that was spotless was transferred onto us. It was imputed to us for righteousness' sake. So that would be the reason why we would want to certainly walk in the Spirit. 45. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about these sayings. So God in his mercy hides this from the disciples. He's telling, Jesus is telling, Jesus is telling, Jesus is telling them. Eventually this comes out. They start to recall everything that he taught them. It was in there somewhere. But God also, um, he, in his sovereignty, he blessed them. And he allowed them not to get hit with the full weight of what was going to happen. Uh, if, if that would have happened, they might have panicked and fled. Could you imagine them really getting it at that point? Wait, wait a minute. You just did all this incredible stuff. You mean to tell me, Jesus, that people are going to grab you and they're going to beat you and that you're going you're to die on that cross slowly. And then when you die, they're all going to turn against us. You know, it was something that they had to digest slowly. First Corinthians 10:13 tells us that, look, whether it's trials or temptations, God won't give us more than we can handle. So the question is, do you want to go through a trial with God? Or without God. I prefer to go through trials with God. Because see I've tried it both ways. And it's certainly better going through it with God. It's like he's saying. I'll walk you through it. I'll, I'll, each step of the way. You're going to go through trials. But I got, I got you. I got your hand. Uh, so many different examples. I mean even the wedding yesterday. The bride was so nervous. And I, know I just kept trying to reassure her. And that was a good thing. A wedding. But it was, it's nerve wracking getting married. Right? And I'll save those jokes for later. But, but she, I said to her, listen, I will walk you through it. Take my cues. I'll speak and you'll know what to do. I'll move my head, certain motions. I said, the three of us will be up there. No one's going to really see what's going on because, you know, your backs are going to be towards the people. And that really made her feel much better, knowing that she could be walked through it. Myself and the groom walked her through it. And she did great. It was an awesome wedding. So it's always great when God walks us through things. And God did the same thing with me. Now, when it came, let's see, last, last year when the question came to me, would I be interested in taking the position of senior pastor here? If God, if I knew everything of the responsibilities of what it was to be a senior pastor physically and spiritually, I might have said, no way, man. <laughs> I'd rather be a cop. It's safer. But God, he just was great. Just like with the disciples, he gave me a little bit, a little piece at a time. And I'm not going anywhere. So, verse 46. It says, Then a dispute arose them among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by them. Him. Now, why a child? I'm sorry. What about the greatest? Who's the greatest? Didn't they just hear the sermon on self-denial? It could be that they were basking in, well, yeah, we heard that, but oh, look at Jesus. He triumphs again. You know, he beat that demon down. Who can stop him? And probably, for that matter, who can stop us? People get psyched when they follow a great leader. It's just a psychological thing. Maybe the disciples got a little carried away. It's just a guess. But this isn't the last time that it happens. You know, you could say, well, you know, it was once in a once, one-shot deal. In Matthew 20, just before the triumphal entry, James and John strike again. And this time, they put their mom up to it. Could you picture them, the two of them, James and John? Hey, mom, come here. We got something for you to do. Yeah, 
real simple. Just go up to Jesus and ask him if me and John, you know, we can sit on Jesus' right hand and left hand. And she does it. <laughs> I don't know what they said to her, but I've always said the woman must have had a lot of moxie. And I'm convinced that she had to be part Sicilian. <laughs> Jewish mom, Sicilian mom, what's the difference? You've got to love them both. But 47, it says, Jesus, perceiving the thoughts of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Why a child? What are the qualities of a child? Well, before we go into that, what was the status of children in those days? It wasn't very good. There was no DIFAS. There was no child labor laws. There was no specialized children hospital. There was none of that stuff. Children were commodities. As a matter of fact, they weren't even considered useful until they were old enough to either work, become heirs of a, per, a certain, uh, become heirs to an important position, fight in the military, or produce offspring. Other than that, they really weren't good for much until they could be good to people who wanted to use them. I remember a story speaking about children when uh, myself, Pastor Luis, remember Luis spoke here? He wasn't a pastor at the time. And another brother, the three of us were with our wives, the six of us. We went to somebody's house and, you know, we had some fellowship afterwards. And the, the men uh, broke off in a group and then the women broke off in a group. Well, it started out well. The men were talking about biblical things and then it became maybe a little prideful. And we started talking about who could name the Bible books in the order from Genesis to Revelation. And we were all having trouble. Now, Lewis's son, who's now a teenager, he was a little kid at the time. He, come, he hears what's going on, and he comes into the room, he says, can I say something? And we were like, yeah, go ahead. So he sings this little ditty that he learned in Sunday school, and it pretty much memorized all the books from Genesis to Revelation, and we were all like... <laughs> you know, the Bible says, out of the mouth of babes you've ordained praise. That little kid humbled us, but he, was, he did it totally innocently. And of course, women have bionic hearing. <laughs> all you married men know that. They were in the other room, heard, even though they were talking, they can multitask, they heard everything that was going on, and they were laughing at us. So we were really humiliated. I'm sure Lewis, when he listens to that, is going to appreciate that I told that story. But in the Lord's eyes, he says, don't forbid them to come to me, speaking about children, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Unless you be converted as a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Does it mean like the whole born-again thing? The teacher didn't understand. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb for a second time? That was unfathomable fathomable to him. In this instance, what, what does that mean? I've got to go backwards in years and become a little child? Well, this is what he meant. Starting with faith. With the child, in looking at their parents, they can do no wrong. No matter what a parent is a bad parent, little children look up to their parents no matter how abusive they are, and they always love their parents. They always have great faith in their parents. The lesson to adults is that better, far better than any biological parent that you could have had, God is the perfect father. So for adults, we should have faith in a, in a perfect father who really cares for us. Trust. Little children try to see the good in all. Little children are very trusting. That's why you have to teach them. Don't talk to strangers. And you have to train them to keep the little kids safe. For adults... Meditate on all things that are good. I want to read one verse in Philippians 4.8. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, 
whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So there's lessons that we can take from little children. Teachability. Little kids are always willing to learn. They're little sponges. They ask you questions and questions. They barrage you with questions. Uh, And for adults, for us not to be know-it-alls, sometimes we reach a certain level and we're unteachable. We can't learn anything new. Or there's certain people that we can't learn from. We can only learn from certain people. We need to be teachable. Of of course, we should test everything. But we should be able to be teachable no matter what our status is in society. Be able to sit at the Lord's feet and learn. And humility. Children don't elevate themselves. And for, for adults, this is what God is always trying to teach us. Now, little test of humility. How many people here, by a show of hands, consider themselves very humble? Oh, nobody took the bait. <laughs> for the record, nobody raised their hand. But the test is, when you do something good, can you keep it to yourself? Man, that's hard to do. I've got to admit you know, I try to think, well, I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it in a way that it just sounds like it's, it's incidental, you know? No matter, when we tell somebody, we want to get excited and tell people when we do something good for the Lord. You know, we, we get really excited, but if you really think about it, there's always, even if it's small, there's always a thread of you want to fluff your feathers a little bit. People don't know what a great Christian you are. The real test is, can you keep it a secret between you and God? Can you do something really great and just smile and keep it between you and the Lord? It's tough to do. Verse 49. It says, Then John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. John here, the disciple John, becomes a self-appointed sergeant-at-arms for Jesus' ministry. They're kind of acting as if this is now an exclusive club. It's pretty amazing. What blows me away is this person who wasn't part of the 12, we don't know who he is, it doesn't name him, but he was around Jesus, probably one of those many people in the multitude that came to listen, and he probably listened real intently to what Jesus was saying, and he absorbed it. And over time, weeks, months, he started to get it. Now, we, we think, okay, this is a story, demon possessions. If, you, if somebody here was really demon-possessed and doing all kinds of crazy things and, you know, being able to break chains and just do amazing uh, tasks, who would really have the guts to say, okay, stand back, and I'm going to take care of this. I mean, that's a a pretty intimidating thing to do. But this man, not being one of the 12, he got it. Over time, he got what Jesus was saying, and he applied it. And Jesus was pleased with it. One of the biggest joys in ministry is if somebody comes in new to the church, and, you know, at the end of service, there's a lot of people that come and talk to me. Maybe they feel intimidated. You know, they don't want to cut the line or whatever. And months go by, and they're new to the church, and they're listening, and they're reading the Word of God, and they're praying, and their lives are starting to change. The most amazing thing is when they come to you afterwards and say, Pastor, I really got to talk to you. Just give me five minutes. You know, I started coming here a few months ago, and this in my life has changed, and and they start regurgitating Scripture. You, You just get taken aback. It blows you away. Jesus said, if he is not against us, he is for us. And two more things are a heart issue. And again, it's a possible jealousy issue here with the disciples. They saw someone else having a success, but not associated with them, not associated with their club. But we told them to stop doing it. Hey, they just had a problem casting out this demon. This guy's having great success, and they tell him not to do it. Envy, jealousy. That means that somebody has, somebody has something that I don't, 
Or if somebody has something that's equal to what I have, but I don't want them to have it. Envy, jealousy. And the flip side of the coin is exclusivity. I'm part of the in crowd. I have something that you don't. Nah, 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 like a kid. You know, I have something that you don't. I flaunt it and I try to keep it to myself. Well, you can't have it because we're part of the in crowd. You can't get into this, into this club here. It's exclusive. Now, exclusivity is good with God's choice of salvation. Many, many people find the wide road to destruction, Jesus said, but many few people, few people find the narrow road. Now, look, that sounds narrow-minded, but I could always blame it on God. I didn't make up the rules. God did. I'm just following them. He says that there's a narrow road, and very few people find it, but not brothers and sisters who don't share your vision. If people are solid in their walk, you know, I'm friends with people from other churches. You know, I like to network with different pastors. As long as they have good doctrine, I'm okay with it. They don't share my vision. That's fine. God's given them a unique vision for themselves. We shouldn't say, well, because they're not part of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, they're no good. And you you can see that in the scripture here. These guys are having an exclusive club here. Um, And again, even with the whole thing about exclusivity in the way of salvation, remember in the Old Testament, people couldn't come to God any old way. As a matter of fact, if something was done wrong, God would strike them down. The ark, the ark of, the, of the covenant wasn't carried properly. It was on a cart. It should have been on poles. And when the, uh, the, the, the cart stumbled and the ark started to fall, I think his name was uh, Uzzah, he went to touch it and he was destroyed. Same thing with the Holy of Holies. There was a certain prescription for coming to God in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And if it wasn't followed to a T, the person would die. So it's no different in the New Testament. It's a very easy way to get to God. Very simple. Anybody can do it. But God says this is the only way. So Old Testament, New Testament, nothing's really changed. And a good lesson here is that nobody's better than another. It doesn't matter what title you hold in the church. Nobody's better than another. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. So with this block ending, it looks like this is a, an extension of what Jesus said before about denying self. It does appear, though, he had to reiterate it in a different way because they started not to get it again. So he started reiterating the part about, you know, denying yourself. And as sinners, we certainly need to be continually reinforced, reinforced about this, this point, about denying ourselves and trying to esteem others better than ourselves. 51. It says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is where Jesus starts to head south in his ministry. He's going to hit the Judean area pretty heavy in his ministry. Uh, we're, we're about six months away from the crucifixion, five to six months. Now, several Sundays back, I made a mistake with the adulterous woman. I said they were five to six months away. It was an error in my timeline that I, I'm just correcting now. So this is the point where they're five to six months away from the crucifixion. So it's getting close. 52. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now, this is something that we have to look at historically. If you're in Galilee, it's the north country, pretty much north by the area of the the Sea of Galilee, and you want to get to Judea, where Jerusalem is, and you want to head south, you pretty much have to pass through. It's still, I guess, considered northern, but the... The area of Samaria is kind of between Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem. And you have to pass through there. Here's where the prejudice comes in. The nation of Israel was one nation. And then after Solomon died, the nation broke up into two nations, the two tribes on the bottom and the ten tribes in the north. And there was a little, you know, north-south kind of, uh, you know, warfare, go figure. 
So what happened was the, the north country was very wicked, and God sent the Assyrians in, the Assyrian kingdom, to come in and dominate them, to besiege them, to attack them, and to dominate over the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's what happened. And what happened was when they finally dominated the northern kingdom, they left the southern kingdom for the, for the time being alone. They expatriated a lot of people to Assyria, and they repopulated the people with, with pagans, pagan practices, Gentiles, the whole thing. And over time, there was a lot of intermarrying, and they became, uh, there was a prejudice. It was, they were half-breeds. The Jews in the south didn't look at the Jews in the north as true Jews because there was too much intermixing and pagan practices that were mixed in. So this is what developed. And what happened was, instead of going to Jerusalem to worship, the people from the northern kingdom started, they found their own mountain to worship on. They said, ah, we don't have to go to Jerusalem. We're going to find our own mountain, and this is going to be our place where we do our sacrifices to God. So, you know, you can see this in John chapter 4 when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. She talks about the situation where they have found their own mountain to be on. So that's a little bit of the history. But you even see it today. You see that prejudice. People are different from me, and I don't like them whatever it is. Now, I, w I wonder, in, in the United States, who's full-blooded anything in this country, you know? How can we claim any of that full-bloodedness? When Heather and I were away, we, we spoke to this elderly couple from Indiana, and they said they go through Ohio a lot. It doesn't matter where you're from. They said that Route 70 is like the dividing line. I believe it was Route 70. The people on the north in Ohio above Route 70 are more of Midwesterners. The people below Route 70 are more like the Appalachian people. And it's that, what's with the North-South thing, you know, the Civil War, it's that, that friction going on. So, you know, we can't, we, we can't claim, anybody can't claim anything 100%. Now, I like to pick on Sicilians because I'm three-quarters Sicilian. So <laughs> we've got attitudes because we're confused. We're part Italian, we're part African, we're part Greek, we're part Arab. I actually looked up Sicily, and we've been invaded and, and settled so many times that we're just like the United Nations. You know, we're a mixture of everything. You know what, who knows and who cares where I'm from? But genetically, actually, I don't know if you knew this, it's actually better to, to have a lot of ethnicities mix in marriage because it avoids uh, ethnocentric uh, genetic diseases. Did you know that? So it's better to, you know, to mix it all up. <laughs> What's so funny about that? Anyway, I think the problem in our society is that we take ourselves too seriously. You know what? We need to lighten up and work together. There's a lot of opportunities in this country, and you see in our society a lot of people that are walking around angry or they're stuck on themselves, and you say hello to somebody and they won't smile at you. It's like they take more energy forcing themselves not to smile or return the hello than to actually be nice. My mom used to say, the furrowed eyebrows and the, and the crinkled forehead, she used to say, your face is going to freeze like that. So people got to stop being so stuck on themselves. I mean, I, it's really sad. We have to laugh a little bit and, and just be light about ourselves, you know. I've been accused of laughing and joking too much, but that's just my nature. I'd like to keep it light. You know, I don't like confrontation. I like to meet people and mix with people. And I mostly poke fun at myself. And I know that when you laugh, you're laughing with me, not at me, right? <laughs> Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord... Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, if you look at Second Kings uh, chapter 1, you get a little background about what they're talking about. Yes, 
uh, Elijah commanded fire to come down on the top of Mount Carmel to burn up the prophets of, of Baal. But also, in, in that scripture, 2 Kings chapter 1, the evil king Ahaziah was on the throne. And uh, Elijah was on the, on the mountain, and uh, Ahaziah sent a captain of 50 and 50 men in the army to go get uh, Elijah. But their intentions were not, not so good. They were going to harm him and uh, apprehend him. And they said, man of God, come down from that mountain. And Elijah said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And they got, they got toasted. And this happened one more time, and they, got, they didn't learn from the last group of 50. And the last group, the guy says, uh, he goes, man of God, please spare my life. You know, please don't kill us. Please come down from the mountain. So he came down from the mountain. But the reason that Elijah sent fire down is he was just trying to defend himself. You know, he, they were going to hurt him. Now, let's, let's go back to James and John here. They want to do the same thing. They want to torch the Samaritans. A little bit of a different situation. Number one, James and John weren't prophets. Number two, the Samaritans were not looking to harm them. They just didn't want them to come there. And number three, furthermore, Jesus came in to usher the age of grace, not for destruction. It's amazing how people say, well, how come this is in the Bible and this isn't? How come these books are left out? I think about the Gospel of Thomas. I read several years ago, and it's, my memory's vague on that book. But one thing that stands out in my mind is in the Gospel of Thomas, as a youth, Jesus killed another kid. Now, I'm looking at the scripture here. I've read the whole Bible, the harmony of the Gospels, the Old Testament, how it points to the Messiah. And nowhere does it say that this would happen. As a matter of fact, Jesus laid down his life for all. So to me, immediately, the Gospel of Thomas has to be rejected. It's garbage. It's a piece of trash. So, um, you know, and also when Peter pulled out his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane to defend Jesus, he said, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, and he made him put his sword back in his sheath. So you see the harmony of the scriptures there. Okay, now what happens is Jesus, at the end ends up departing and going to another village where he will be received. And this should be our example as Christians. Christians are not supposed to be obnoxious. We're not supposed to beat people down with the Bible. We need to befriend people and love them, and then the gospel is received better. When I was young, uh, when I was in college, I used to work at a stair factory. What a monotonous job that was. And, you know, because I, I was so, you know, full of, you know, always wanting an ADD, I guess. But for lack of a better word, but I, it was so hard to just kind of just pay attention to one particular task and keep doing it. But there was this man, his name was Lloyd. He was an old Jamaican man. And at lunchtime, he would, he was a very good worker, you know, nice guy. Everybody looked up to him. And at lunchtime, he would sit. And as we were eating his lunch, he would tell us all about the Bible. He was a born again Christian. He would tell us stories and answer a lot of questions. And it was so cool, the, the manner that he used it. It was that patient evangelism that Lloyd Poley speaks of. So what he would do is, you know, over the years, I never forgot Lloyd, uh, this Jamaican man. And when I got saved, you know, part of it was his words that he would speak to me over and over. And they would, they would go somewhere in my mind. And eventually I got saved. So I, would, I remember coming back to see him and tell him many years later, but he had already passed away. But this man had an incredible effect on my life, and it was his whole mannerisms. It was the word of God, and it was how he loved us and cared for us. And even though he could have been going off somewhere and eating lunch, he would always sit with us young men and try to teach us the things of God. And that's how we should be. And if we didn't listen to it, he didn't force us, just like in here. Jesus just went to another village, not to be obnoxious. But Paul teaches us good lessons on how we should view ourselves. We should esteem others better than ourselves. We should be careful of thinking uh, more of ourselves than we really are. 
And the disciples weren't getting it. So Jesus had to make this point. You do not know what manner of spirit you are. To me, I think that's a very powerful statement. You know, we see a lot about the terrorists, and they're very religious, and they're very fundamental, and they believe that they're pleasing their God, and they kill people. But that's not us. It actually offends me when people say, well, you worship the same God. How so? That's blasphemous. These people, you know, I saw, I saw the video of the uh, Zarqawi's beheading. I believe it was Nick Berg. I don't recommend anybody seeing that. I've been a police officer going into my 15th year, and I've seen a lot of people die. I tell you, when I saw that video, it took me a few days to recover from it. It was very disturbing. You're going to tell me that that guy taking a, a, a handsaw and doing that while the guy's begging for mercy, you're going to tell me that he worships the same God I do? We do not know what manner of spirit we are. That is not the manner of spirit that we are. We are night and day different from those people. Angry people. It reminds me of when they used to, and they probably still practice it, the attack dogs. They would feed the dogs an acid-based uh, food diet, so it would irritate their stomachs, and they would get angry and angry and get more nasty. And that's how they made the attack dogs. Um, the terror cells, the little psychology behind it, is when they put, and they're here, no doubt, when they have terror cells within a country, within a host country, they're parasites. What they do is they alienate them from family, from friends, and they don't allow them to have girlfriends, and they don't allow them to have possessions because they don't want them to get attached and start having love for the country that they're in. And they're, they're just sleeper cells. And this is what they do. They keep them angry. Now, and this is in the name of religion? Who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? You know? I mean, I could really get, um, really go, go off on this subject, but Jesus said, that's not the manner of spirit we are. We're to love people. We're to befriend these people. It doesn't matter what their background is. We love them. They see the love of Christ in us. And then we are able to usher in that message of salvation. So he's trying to tell these guys, don't do that. That's not who we are. And that's, that's never who we'll be. Verse 57. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this is under the cost of discipleship. And Jesus is going through a few situations where people are talking about, you know, coming or not coming. But this is, this is not obviously, there's no way you can find the prosperity gospel in this. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter heals the lame man. The man's lame, and Peter says, look at us. And he, gets, he fixes the guy's attention on Peter. And he says, silver and gold, I have none of these. The guy's probably like, then what do you want to talk to me for? Because his job as a crippled man was to, to beg alms so that he could support himself. And Jesus, uh, Peter said, what I have, I give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He didn't have money to give him. He didn't have any money. He said it. But he was able to heal him by the power of Jesus Christ. And that's what he gave him. So in, in, this, in this instance, Peter, or Jesus is saying the same thing. Um, count the costs. Before you make a commitment to me, I don't have any place to lay my head. You know, birds have nests, foxes have holes. Son of man has no place to lay his head. I don't have a palace that you can hang out with me and with the 12 disciples and, and have fun. So count the cost. I want to read Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes 5. It talks about making vows to God. Actually, I'm going to... Okay, verse 1, it says, Walk prudently when you go near to the house of God. And draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, 
And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, but it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there also is vanity, but fear God. Jesus is being straight with this guy. We're not required to make vows to the Lord, and we do it all the time. Lord, I promise I'll do this if you do this. And then how many times do we fail to pay those vows? The Bible says, listen, don't make a vow at all. Because once you make it, God's going to expect you to pay up on it you know, when the time comes. So Jesus is being straight with this guy. It's better for him to expect rejection, sorrow, before he says yes. Verse 59. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't mean, it sounds, at first, it sounds pretty uh, harsh. You know, his father just died. He's out in the field, and this guy's got to leave and follow Jesus, and his father's not even going to be buried. It's not what he means. It was an expression. I, you know, my dad is, is elderly. You know, he's going to die soon. Maybe he's, he's terminal. And, um, you know, I wanna, when he dies, I want to bury him and set my house in order, get the inheritance. And once I got all my ducks in a row, then I'll follow you. That, that was pretty much what he was saying. Now, I think about um, even when it comes to where I'm at now, I can kind of draw a parallel there. You know, I had my plans. <laughs> my plans were, okay, I started off in Calvary Old Bridge and learned under the tutelage of Old Bridge, and then I started a men's group, then I started a, a community Bible study, then I became an elder here, and that was where I wanted it to stay. <laughs> my plans were this, finish out my 11 years on the force, get my pension, <laughs> get my retirement, and then, when I have everything coming in, the health care plan, the dental plan, and the money coming in, then maybe I'll think about being a pastor. Well, obviously, the Lord had different plans. He always has a sense of humor. You know, God says, he says, listen, not only count the cost, but if I call you to do it, it's not about how you can prepare. It's how I'm going to prepare you. It's how you're going to live by faith. I got news for you. I'm not waiting 10 years to retire. I don't think I'm even waiting five years. So eventually I'm going to be here, you know, and, and it's going to be full time because the Lord's called me into this position. So God certainly, uh, you know, we think that we're going to make plans and the Lord has other plans. In verse 61, it says, And then another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell at my house. And Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of opinions on this one. Some people look at this as the same scenario as the one before, but I don't think so. I think this is a picture of double-mindedness. You know, if you're in the field, and, and man, if you're, anybody's a farmer here or knows a farmer, that's a tough job, especially before they had, uh, you know, caterpillars, you know, the hydraulic equipment. They did everything by hand. They had the oxen, you know, the plows, and if they were, you know, on the plow and guiding the oxen, it was a hard job. You couldn't get on and then get off and then get on and then get off. It's a picture of double-mindedness. You're either, you're either on or you're off. Are you, are you laboring in God's field or are you not laboring in God's field? Make a decision. It reminds me a lot of, um, and the thought that came to my head was Lot's wife. Remember in Genesis when they were told to leave Sodom? 
Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, the cities on the coastal plains that were destroyed by God, fire and brimstone. They told specifically Lot and his wife and his two daughters, leave the city, it's going to be destroyed by God, and don't look back. Okay? Well, what did she do? She looked back. Uh, and the picture is not that she made a mistake and she stumbled and she opened her eyes and God punished her meanly. You know, you really have got to see, knowing God, what happened here. When Lot's wife looked back, she longed for that city in her heart. Part of, part of the city was in her still. You know, it was a picture of worldliness. She couldn't leave that behind. She, she had to look back and she wanted to go forward, but she really desired Sodom. That's really where her home had become. And you know the story. She's now become a popular seasoning that raises blood pressure. Let's see if you're awake. But it's a picture of double-mindedness, you know, God and the world. You won't have true peace until you serve God and use his talents. Well, what is the true cost of discipleship? Well, then the question is, what's a disciple? We've said this before. In the Greek, it means one who learns, or a student, or an apprentice. And that really applies to everyone here. It's a good lesson for all of us. From the mountain of glory that Jesus was on to the valley of, of, of business as usual with people and problems, the Lord revealed his glory on the mountain. He laid out the best plan for life in his word, and he reinforced his teachings. And what did Jesus get for it from these disciples? Well, disciples that pursued actions as if they had blinders on and earplugs in for the last two plus years that they were with him. Forgot how to cast out a demon. They just did it. And they, they had forgot. You know, their, their uh, devotional life was waning. Who's the greatest? Didn't Muhammad Ali say that? I keep saying that, and I keep thinking that's familiar. Who's the greatest? You know, me, is it John? Right hand, left hand, you know? Um, right after Jesus speaks about uh, talking about denying yourself. Cease and desist. You're not one of us. You can't cast out demons. Who do you think you are? You, you know, we're part of the elite club. You didn't ask our permission. What do you think you're doing over there? And the best one is, hey, we got the power. Let's torch the Samaritans. <laughs> Let's have a barbecue, you know? I could picture Jesus going, oi vey, what am I doing with these guys? But it is, again, it's very easy to pick on the disciples in hindsight. And let's be honest, are we any different? The, the human will is a force to be reckoned with. I'm no different. Sometimes it takes me a long time to get stuff. And the weird thing, the most bizarre thing is, when I listen to my messages, I get convicted. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's like somebody else is talking. I'm like, that's a good point. <laughs> That must have been the Holy Spirit. That wasn't me. <laughs> you know, but we think, that, we think that we're so smart as human beings, but nothing's changed in the last 2,000 years. It's like the saying goes. It's the same circus, but different clowns, you know? <laughs> we keep trying to improve ourselves and make ourselves happier, but we're probably more depraved as a, as a society and more miserable than any before us. But, and the answer is this. It's because there is no new way. There's no new answer to the mountains and valleys in our lives. There's nothing new. The answer is Jesus. It's the best formula 2,000 years ago, and it's still the same, with prayer and the word of God and fellowship. Let's pray. You know, but we 